It's happening, readers. We have heard that you want paperbacks from our tailored book recommendation service called TBR. And I am delighted to let you know that we're going to be in sync with your request. That's right. We're bringing paperbacks. Whether you hate carrying around bulky hardcovers, you're on a budget, you want a wider range of recommendations, or all of the above, now you can get a paperback subscription from TBR curated just for you by one of our bibliologists. Get all the details at mytbr.co. That's mytbr.co. We're bringing paperbacks. <laughs> Welcome to Hey YA, from great new books to favorite classic reads, new stories to the latest in on-screen adaptations, Hey YA is here to elevate the exciting world of young adult lit. Hey YA is a book riot podcast hosted by Erica Azafetti and me, Tears of Price, and today we are recording on March 10th. So before we get into the meat of today's episode, um, which you are hearing on March 15th, the Ides of March, which will be a big deal. I'm going to talk um, a bit about an announcement we have. So if you are looking for some fascinating stories, informed takes, advice, um, and just more interesting good stuff from experts in books and reading, subscribe to Book Riot's newest newsletter, The Deep Dive, and then you'll get exclusive content delivered to your inbox. So this is a subscription. You can choose your membership level at bookriot.substack.com. Um, basically, we're tapping experts to share longer gems of information about the publishing industry based on just years of knowledge about books and publishing experience experiences as readers and book curators and also just research on lesser known histories to illuminate and inspire you. I personally love to know fascinating deep dives about like little known aspects of the publishing industry because we're nerds like that. So for $5 a month, you can get this deep dive edition in your newsletter inbox and it comes um, twice a month. So if you're on the fence or you need some time before making that commitment, a free subscription will get you the splash pad, which rounds up some of our experts' recommended reading and bookish lifestyle goods monthly. So remember, you can go to bookriot.substack.com for that, the deep dive. But otherwise, hello, Erica. How are you? Hello. I'm doing well. I also appreciate a good little dive, a little deep dive. You know what I mean? So that sounds super fun. Yeah. I'm doing well. It decided to be cold and dreary today, so that's where we're at. I had to run to get a sweater real quick. I don't know how how are things in your neck of the woods. I also put on a sweater right before yeah. recording because I was like, oh, you know, it's funny. Everyone's like, March, it's spring. And I'm like, exactly. yeah, not in the Midwest. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and East Coast stuff is just like kind of all over the place, <laughs> interestingly yep. enough. But yeah, it's not bad. It's not. I mean, I like cozying up with a, a little cardigan and a warm beverage, you know, yes. talking about books. So I'm not complaining or anything. But it's that time of year where I get excited when it gets warm because I'm imagining yeah. spring. But I'm also yeah. trying to keep myself grounded and know that like it could still snow as far as like late April where I what? live. So, oh, yeah, it's fun. Well, yeah, I guess that. Yeah. Oof, that Midwest life. A Midwest life. Yeah, y'all. <laughs> I had a friend who's from Detroit, and 
one time she was like she was on the move to the east coast i've never really been to the midwest no i haven't except briefly and she was like oh i'm cold and i'm like you're cold aren't you from detroit and she was like yes you're right usually we bark at the snow i was like that's what i thought i thought y'all like bark literally barked at cold (laughs) i was like y'all on another level but see, the thing is, is Midwesterners might be used to like lots of snow and cold, mm. but we also love complaining about the snow and cold. Those are like our two favorite things. That's we fair. Like like it, but we like complaining about it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Okay, so I didn't even know I was like kind of feeding into that when I asked you about the weather. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. It's yes, all good. Perfect. Oh, awesome. Yes. Yeah. So we were doing good. We're trying to stay cozy and Mm -hmm. we got a good episode lined up that's very nerdy and also we have a little bit of news Mm. so if you like me maybe grew up reading aragon in like eighth grade and are excited about that world christopher polini has a new book set in that world coming out very soon it is murtag and it is a new ya fantasy i think it's set like a year after the end of inheritance which i'm just reading this article now from tour.com inheritance came out in 2011 and i'm like oh let's not talk about it because then they're going to be saying that that's historical fiction (laughs) right and i'm not prepared because the american girl dolls just came out from the 90s and i still feel a ways about those that that was an attack a personal that was an actual assault on us millennials so yes yeah (laughs) <laughs> but if you want to like and you know just get into your your sort of nostalgic hmm. feels for Aragon and you know dragon hunters and all that or dragon riders not dragon hunters they're dragon riders Murtag comes out and it, it will be out later this year in November and it is going to be obviously probably if you read the series and you know anything about the characters, the book is going to be about Aragon's arch nemesis seems like a very strong word, but like definitely like <laughs> rival antagonist. So that will be really interesting. That's, I love that. That's that's cool. Yeah. I have not read these books since I was like an actual teenager. Yeah. And in fact, I have to admit, I'm not even sure if I finished them like i know i read the first three but i can't remember if i read inheritance i never mm. read them but they were on my tbr because i was in my fantasy bag at at that age also and i just never got to them but i always meant to and i knew i would like them because i loved fantasy and i love reading fantasy books in this like kind of like medieval-ish time period yes so i never got to them but i feel like i would have liked them a lot actually I really liked them. I liked them a lot when I was in high school. I don't know if I my feelings would change if I picked them up now That's because it's yeah. been nearly 15 years since I've oh. I've read them, but I do remember loving them. I do remember like my local bookstore got like a bunch of signed copies of um, the second or the third book and my mom got me that for Christmas one year when I was Aww. in high school and I was like this is the best Christmas gift ever yeah, so, so definitely cute. was super into it it's like if you like that very immersive fantasy where it's like you're gonna start here and then you're gonna go here and then you're gonna go there mm-hmm. and then we're gonna do here and then we might start working up to like 
the, you know, the major action, like definitely this is a good series for you. I just, you know, I have them at my library. I'm not sure if they've gone out right lately, but mm-hmm. one thing that I'm constantly reminding myself, cause like, I think sometimes when books like this come out, like, you know, sequels or, or new books in a series, like 10 mm-hmm. years later, yeah. oftentimes the YA community is like, Oh, who wants that? Or like, Oh my gosh, are we throwing it back? Like I, I heard that sort of discourse around the new Twilight book that we talked about on oh, yeah. um, people like, do we really need a new Twilight book but what one thing that I think that it's important to remember and I felt like it's important for me to remind myself and I've learned since working in a library is that like a lot of these YA books that we see as old or like are no longer trendy or have like passed like they're still on shelves in libraries and like teens today like actual teens you know, were babies or not even born when they first came out. So, like, yeah. they discover them for the first time and then they're like, this is so awesome. So, I love that for them. And I'm not sure if my my Aragon books have gone out lately, but I'm sure that this new release will probably spark something for some people. And, um, yeah. yeah. Maybe put them out on display so, like, people can, like, yeah. get, like you know, have some time to to jump in if they're not familiar. And also I would add to your point that the teens of today were not around or were not teens when these books first came out, just like we weren't alive or teens when some YA books that we read when we were teens oh, yeah. came out. So totally. it's just like new generations discovering things from prior generations or previous generations. I was a tiny baby when a lot of Tamara Pierce's yeah. you know, Tortal books were coming out. And I yeah. discovered those in like the early 2000s and loved them so much and still love them to this day. So yeah, that's it's just a really cool thing to see things go through like cycles of like new generations discovering them. Yeah. And sometimes I think the YA discourse can get a little catty of like always focusing on the new thing. But it's like, no, there's so many great books. Like let it, people love what they get excited about. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of what I was going to say, too, just in different words. Like, there's room for all of it. There's room for all of it. Absolutely. I am curious to see, though, too, because, again, this seems like more of, like, the classic fantasy type of book, like, as far as cover art and everything is concerned. From the time, like, when it was released, it was like, oh, like, that's, like, a you know, like, um, medieval-ish fantasy so I'm curious to see how it does now. Yeah. Like, I'm curious how it would do. The fantasy landscape for YA has definitely shifted a ton since yeah. like 2009. So um, when these books were kind of, I think, at the height of their popularity. But yeah, it'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We're going to get into the meat of our episode. But first, um, let's hear from our sponsor. It's happening, readers. We have heard that you want paperbacks from our tailored book recommendation service called TBR. And I am delighted to let you know that we're going to be in sync with your request. That's right. We're bringing paperbacks. Whether you hate carrying around bulky hardcovers, you're on a budget, you want a wider range of recommendations, or all of the above, now you can get a paperback subscription from TBR curated just for you by one of our bibliologists. Get all the details at mytbr.co. That's mytbr.co. We're bringing paperbacks. All right. You know what today is. The day that you're hearing this, not the day that we're recording, but it is 
the Ides of March. And dun, dun, dun. Yes. So watch out for any, you know, backstabbing friends. Ha ha. Um, (laughs) uh, Beware the Ides of March. No, I just, I, I, when I found out that our episode was going to fall on the Ides of March, I was like, we have to do Shakespeare, Erica. Such a good idea. Yes. And luckily you were like, okay, you were on board. There's so many great Shakespeare retellings in YA. And I think, you know, it's interesting to kind of see like the waves of like what is popular and then like what kind of comes back around. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when we were teenagers, there were just like a bajillion Romeo and Juliet retellings. I was going to say, I feel like with making the list for today's episode, I feel like I still kept coming across a lot of those for YA. I got some other ones too that I purposefully looked at you know made sure to include other ones but i don't know it seems like you didn't have as much of that problem well i i mean i i admit that i was kind of like trying to steer clear of romeo and juliet but it makes sense why there are so many because i think like in the united states of america we are legally obligated to make all 14 year olds in freshman English read Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> like, it's just like, it's in the constitution. It's in the constitution. In the yes. Constitution. So, um, which is funny. Cause like, you know, and it makes sense. Like they're 14 and yeah. it's a way to kind of like get kids to relate to Shakespeare. Although that's true. Yeah. As somebody who's an English major and like, who's actually studied Shakespeare, I'm not sure if that's like the best approach because like Shakespeare, you need a little bit of you need to set that shit up basically yeah (laughs) like it's just a lot like the language and everything so i think it's interesting and i love shakespeare but my sort of belief in this could be like potentially a controversial belief although i don't necessarily Mm. think it has to be okay so, like, Shakespeare is hard to read just because mm. the language is so different from how we speak now. It right. takes a little bit of work. I think a good teacher has to kind of, you know, preface, like, okay, this is how you need to go about reading Shakespeare, and this is how we are going to contextualize the plays. And um, unfortunately, I just think, you know, a lot of English teachers do that, a lot don't. So then yeah, kids are just absolutely. like, oh, Shakespeare sucks. Yeah. But as somebody who, like, really enjoys and appreciates Shakespeare because I've put in the time and effort, like, I think that there is no no shame and in fact it's probably an advantage that like these adaptations and retellings that you know are always coming out like i think that helps kids yeah get into the mindset to like either be curious enough to want to read shakespeare or to just kind of like prep them for actually diving in like and i say this is like the the type of teenager who was like you know, so arrogant and a little bit obnoxious where I was like, I'm going to read the original play before I read any adaptation. And then, like, I struggled. I did. But then I got I appreciate a little your bit honesty. older. No. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I was an obnoxious English major. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but then as it. you get a little bit older and I started to like read some of these adaptations, like I realized that like reading an adaptation and knowing sort of the characters and the basic plot, like that actually made me one curious to read the original play and it also helped me get through the original play because i had a vested interest yes so that's why i like adaptations and i also think that all these adaptations and retellings do the like the heavy lifting of keeping shakespeare like relevant in our culture and 
um, just like our cultural knowledge and understanding and collective, I don't know, collective pop culture. I'm not sure what I'm saying, but you know what I'm like, you know what I mean? I mean, it's like Shakespeare, <clears throat> correct me if I'm wrong. You would know I was a psychology major <laughs> and you were an English major. So you, you would probably know this, but like, didn't Shakespeare invent a lot of words for the English language? Oh yeah. Like bedroom. He invented that word. Yeah, like, he was just, like, freestyling, literally. Like, he was like, y'all, swagger, I know that's one. So it's like, in the context of the language we speak now, Shakespeare is a kind of a godfather, or at least a great, great, great uncle or something. So it's important to, at least if, you know, for language lovers, literature lovers, it's, it's good to have, like, a familiarity and kind of see where things came from. If you like language and stuff like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think too, I think that if you're curious about Shakespeare, if you are a teen or if you're not a teen and you're just not familiar, but you want to become more familiar, I think there's no shame in, not even no shame. Let me rephrase that. Take the shame out of it. I think it's a good idea, let's say, to one, read retellings, like you said. Also, you could watch movie adaptations and then read the play the original because then that you kind of know what's going to happen and that familiarizes you with the plot and so whatever you know turns of phrases that you know our 2023 vocab is not you know helping us understand we can kind of fill in the context fill in the meanings and also listen honey spark notes you can read that before you read the original, like read mm-hmm. a summary. So you kind of know, and then you can kind of wrestle with the original language if that's something you want to do. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, there's no wrong way, I think, to like get into it or, yeah. or approach it. And um, to your point too about watching um, like adaptations or performances, like that is a really great way to go because mm-hmm. um, look, these are plays. They're not novels. They're not short yes. stories. They're plays. Yes. They were meant to be performed. And there's a lot of like things that you miss by just reading that you can kind of get out of like the performance angle. So um, yeah. And I, it just reminds me of this, this teen boy that I work with who, who really desperately wanted to see a Shakespeare play because um, he was not going to read anything and then yeah. he was like oh i want to go to shakespeare play and his mom took him to go see i think it was titus adronicus and she was like oh my goodness it was interesting and he was like enamored so like that is also the That's power cool. too of watching a play yeah um and there are some really good play like version like movies that like you know do the plays and they like adhere to the original language sometimes yeah. they modernize or or you know get things contemporized a little bit I will say Joss Whedon is trash, but his version of Much Ado about nothing is really good. The shade of it all. I know. (laughs) You know, I just want to throw that out there. I'm not mad. Listen, I like it spicy. Yes. I'm a I'm a big fan of things that he has produced. But as a person, I'm not like condoning him or anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, I was, I thought you were saying his, his work was trash. But oh, I was no. like, oh, he's also a trash but I see what you're saying. Yeah. No. And then no, I'm, I, let me clarify. I love Buffy. I love a lot of the things yeah. that he's produced. Yeah. Firefly is like one of my favorite things ever, which it makes it sad that, you know, the creator and the producer is not a good <sighs> human being. Um, yeah. But he did a really excellent version of Much Ado About Nothing that is really fun to watch. But yeah. So anyway, there's a lot of ways into Shakespeare. Yeah. 
I saw a good um, rendition of, um, was it much? Nope, not much ado about nothing. A Midsummer Night's Dream in um, New York City for Shakespeare in the Park. And the, there are, I know New York City isn't the only place that has that. And I don't know if they're doing it anymore because of COVID. Ooh, I didn't think about that. But it was super funny. Felicia Rashad was in it. It was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, so all ways are the right way. However you want to go about doing it, you don't have to be in a quote-unquote purist. Whatever gets you to your goal of partaking in it, do it. Absolutely. So do you want to kick us off by talking about a couple of your picks or one of your picks? Certainly, certainly. So my first one is a Romeo and Juliet retelling. (laughs) But it's a good one, so... It's a good one titled These Violent Delights by Chloe Gong. And if you have been like really into like following new releases the past couple years, you probably heard about this. Chloe Gong is doing big things in YA. She is really like releasing some bangers in Miss Chloe took the Romeo and Juliet like star-crossed lovers from rivaling families and was like, what's the most rival type of rivalry? A gang. So Miss Gong is giving like true high stakes. She was like, Romeo and Juliet, um, rivalry, rivaling families, say less. And like, it's true. I think it ups the ante in really interesting ways because gang rivalry can be really intense, obviously. So you have 18-year-old Julia Kai, who has just returned from New York City where she was a flapper because guess what? This takes place in the 1920s. So Miss Chloe is also gagging us with time and setting. I love the 20s. This is for the flapper fans, the glamour girlies. Yes. Let me stop joking. I love reading books in the 20s because it was such an interesting time because it was glamorous, but it was also had some devious aspects it had contradictions it was a cool time in history and the book has great historical detail considering that there are like speculative elements in it so Juliet has returned to shanghai to take over for the chinese scarlet gang which is ran by her family and the romeo of the story is roma montagov who is 19 and part of the russian white flowers they were involved some uh, time ago The Roma betrayed her and it led to people from her gang dying. So Juliet wants it back in blood, as they say, basically. But wait, there is something even more pressing than getting revenge on the white flowers, on Roma. And it is this uh, unexplainable contagion. Like people are dying, it's messing with people's heads, and there's this monster that may be at the bottom of everything. So the White Flowers and Scarlet Gang members are likely to succumb to this illness, as likely as anyone else. Like, they're not special in that regard. So this makes Juliet and Roma, like, come together to work together. Like, obviously, they're beefing for obvious reasons. And, but they're like, okay, so let's not die. Let's not die here. And let's, you know, protect our, you know, gang families, whatever. So you've got this mystery illness, this mystery monster, you got gangs, you got a lethal female character, a slow burn romance. There's some trans representation and even some exploration of colonialism. It obviously, as we were talking about this whole episode, it, calls back to the original Shakespearean story, but this rendition has its own original elements that make it feel totally new, which is 
what all retelling should aspire to, I think. So get it for the glamour, the glitz, <laughs> the mayhem, the murder, the monsters, the gang. I, I love I just love the aspect of it being a gang. I just that I just think that um, not that I'm, you know, highlighting gang life, whatever. But I just feel like that adds such an interesting element to it, to the original story. So again, These Violent Delights by Chloe Gong. Awesome. Well, okay, I'm going to change my lineup slightly since you talked about how much you love books set in the 1920s. <gasps> yeah. And my first pick is Speak Easy, Speak Love by Mikkel George. And Perfect. this one came out, yeah, this one came out like five or six years ago. And I'm always very sad that it's not more popular than it is because it is a 1920s set retelling of Much Ado About Nothing. And the title, I think, is just brilliant because it is about Beatrice. She gets kicked out of her boarding school. So with nowhere else to go, she heads to Long Island where her uncle and her cousin live. And her cousin Hero, they like live in this rundown mansion. And it's kind of like a fast and loose, anything goes type of lifestyle, which Beatrice is like all too happy to, you know, partake in. Also, she is wants to be a doctor one day. So she is definitely one of those strong, independent women who is fighting against the patriarchy because in the 1920s, there aren't that many female doctors. So the thing is, there's so many great and clever nods to the original um, play in this um, retelling. So the mansion is called Hey Nani Nani, which I'm laughing because, you know. I, okay. I love I love that. That's and, awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. So and, like the family fortune's been kind of depleted. So how they make money is heroes running an illegal speakeasy out of like the basement. Uh, because of course, 1920s, this is during Prohibition era. So it's set over the course of a summer. It's about her meeting. Uh, let's see. There's a young name, man named Prince, um, his brother, John, who has sort of these dark connections to the mob and he's you know of course Don Juan and then Benedict who is this trust fund kid that of course Beatrice cannot stand and he really wants to become a writer one day what I like about this retelling is unlike oh, many retellings that you see um, it does give like pretty heavy weight to like all of the characters in the play so Maggie's in this and um, she's a pretty prominent character as well so they are basically instead of a wedding it's we're going to do this huge big massive party to try to like get enough money to save the speakeasy and of course make sure that the family doesn't go into financial ruin but that is dangerous because again prohibition so i guess i will just tell you one thing and one more thing that i love about this book um dogberry is a prohibition agent and it's delightful so Definitely, definitely pick up this book. Unfortunately, I think that it's only available in hardcover and then like on Kindle or um, whatever, wherever you get your ebooks. They mm-hmm. it didn't get a paperback release. And I think this is Mikkel George's only novel, huh. which is a tragedy because I thought this one was so well written, so romantic, so fun. The banter was delightful. But yeah, Speak Easy, Speak Love. I highly recommend it by Mikkel George. That sounds super fun. Yeah. Yeah, I do like that time period. The speakeasy aspect. Yes. Okay, that sounds fun. Uh, We will continue our journey of Shakespearean retellings. But first, we're going to hear from our sponsor. 
Okay. I have one more. <laughs> I have one more book set in the 20s. This wasn't on purpose. This wasn't on purpose, I promise. <laughs> I love it. it. Just, it just shook out like that. But also, I am obviously biased for that time period. So this is called Bright Ruined Things by Samantha Coho. This is a retelling of The Tempest. And right off the bat, I like how it positions Prospero and his family, which in this book are referred to as the Prospers. Like, obviously, duh. Like, that's nice. that character. Yes. Um, it's super fitting to me because of their privilege on the island. This privilege comes as a result of the magic and the spirits of the island that they control. So, May is the main character. I think in the book she was known as, like, Mousy May or something, which alludes to her backbone or lack thereof but there's a reason she's like mousy so she grew up on the island and she has always been in this kind of precarious and awkward position in relation to the prospers because she's basically like at their mercy they take care of her and she wishes she had magic herself to like put herself on equal footing with them instead of being like a ward of them she's in this position because she was orphaned and is the daughter of one of papa prosper's friends so he's like you know his family's like taking care of her for that reason and like it's just a weird thing because she's from the island she's never been anywhere else but it's also like she clearly doesn't feel like she's truly part of the family and there's a reason for that okay so back to the servants real quick for a second the servants of the Prosper family are the spirits of the island and they are starting to die for some reason that isn't immediately apparent. Add to that that May is going to be banished from, again, mess, banished from like the island when she turns 18, even though, like I said, she does want to be a part of them because it's like the family, the only family she's known. But her planned banishment or exile, whatever, that kind of, again, hints at... You know, something like not being like super right with the Prospers because it's like, how do you, you have this child, this girl that grows up in your care that you know for so long and like when she turns 18, you know, she's orphaned, she's going to kick her out. It's like, okay, terrible. Okay. So there is this once a year night party that is taking place and there's a time when the Prospers like highfalutin friends come to the island to celebrate the family essentially and it's all very glamorous and intriguing and fun on the surface. But during the party, May is ushered into an engagement with one of Prosper's grandsons, Evo. I believe his, believe his name is pronounced Evo. I didn't listen to the audiobook. And you may ask, like, how, you know, she's a free person, whatever. She was going to be banished. Like, how does she, how is she, like, kind of, like, coerced into this? And I have to say, it happens very grossly. Like, she doesn't have anywhere to go, like I mentioned. The island is all she knows. The family uses that as a way to coerce her into accepting the arrangement. As the party goes on, she starts to learn more about the family. She sees how duplicitous they are, how greedy, how unfair. And basically, the facade that she has experienced as being reality becomes starts to become shattered. And the truth about how they all came to be in the position they're in starts to come to light. Now, the question is, I've told you all this. You know, this is happening in this night, this party, this luxurious, like, 20s party. The question is, how will she contend with this new knowledge? Like, will she take her chances elsewhere or will she conform and accept things as they are? That is a part I will leave for you to discover. But I will add that 
Like I said, it's in the 20s and that setting again offers so many great juxtapositions. I think you have the beauty and glamour of the time, the frivolity of the rich and luxuriant parties. And all those things are set against a backdrop of like dishonesty and manipulation and other gnarly, nasty things like that. It's for that reason that this also gives me great Gatsby tease also. Let me say also five more times. (laughs) (laughs) This gives me great Gatsby vibes, tease, whatever. And that the juxtaposition of the like, I don't know, leading aspects or elements of the 20s, like how we look back on the 20s. I think that was one of the best elements of The Great Gatsby. I didn't super like that book. I don't know. It was like maybe an unpopular opinion. But the part of the book that I liked was how it explored that, that, um, that exploration of like the degradation that lies beneath that glamorous veneer. And I will say too, and I would like to hear your opinion on this, Tirza, as you are someone who has studied this more than me. I feel like, and I refreshed like um, my familiarity with The Tempest, which I believe is Shakespeare's last or one of his last works, whatever. I feel like Prospero, I didn't like him. Like, and that's fine to, it's fine to have characters that you don't like in fiction. I don't think all characters or main characters have to be likable. But it's interesting sometimes when you, like when you kind of get the sense that the author, um, the artist of the work, the creator of the work, like what they're trying to convey, like the life lessons or whatever they're trying to convey. convey. And I say that because, okay, Prospero, he had control of the magic. He got banished or whatever, kicked out of his title in Milan and my issue with him is like he was like I feel like he had like indentured servants slash slaves and I was just like bro you're not you're not cool either bro like what do you mean like I I think Ariel was his like um spirit like this is the I'm referring for readers uh listeners rather I'm referring right now to the original play um the retelling is a little different but I'm like, okay, I forgot the witch's name on the island. Um, y- yeah, it's like Sycorax, S- something like yep, that. Yeah, there we go. That's a cool, that that name is a little little fire. I'm going to have to name something Sycorax. I'm not going to lie. Sycorax was also cat. like, the next cat, yes. <laughs> Although, listeners, Tears and I wax, or we discuss the adventures, let's say, of our kittens and they are rambunctious little things. I'm like, maybe I shouldn't like foreshadow, like bring that into <laughs> Don't do yourself. <laughs> yes. I do kind of yes. like that name slaps Loki. But like, so Sycorax was a piece of work and she had previously enslaved the spirit that Prospero like saves and then enslaves. And I'm like, okay, but that's not cool. And then Caliban was her son and he's like a servant. And I'm just like, ooh, I don't like anybody in this play. And that's fine again, but it's also like, okay, Shakespeare, like, he's like, okay, Prospero's going to get revenge on these people that wronged him. And I'm also like, but he's also wronging people and things and beings. So I liked, with all that said, I liked that this book shows the Prospero character as being raggedy. But I would like to hear what you think also on The Tempest, if you've read it. Yeah. I mean, it's been so long since I've Fair. read The Tempest because I was, I was in college. But, like, mm-hmm. it, it is interesting. I think it's it's an interesting story about, like, okay, you know, you first feel like, you know, 
you feel badly for Prospero because he's been wronged and he's yeah. going to like, you know, take everything, you know, take back his, what is it, like a dukedom or a kingdom or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, you want him to succeed, but then it's kind of like, well, how far is he going to go? And how far is too far? Um, and I think like he's supposed to be a bit of a tragic character and flawed. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's interesting. I, so one of the reasons why I think Shakespeare retellings are so fascinating is because mm. you can set them in like any time period, and like there's such wonderful opportunities to just like mm. get creative and like explore those characters in different settings in different circumstances different time periods so i have not read bright ruined things and i've seen the cover but i did not realize it was a 1920s set retelling Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. the tempest and now i really want to read it because of that yeah like obviously things are different and stuff like that but yeah so i liked the there are a lot of unlikable people which i feel like is also like what happened in the Tempest? Like a lot of people yeah. are likable. And again, I'm definitely not one of those people who are like, I didn't like this book because the main character is unlikable. I'm like, I like seeing different aspects of humanity on the page. So I don't need to like every one of my, every one of the character, main characters I read about. Yeah, I like morally gray characters and all that. But yeah, so it's still, it's still a cool thing. Like I said, and this is, this is the last book that takes place in the 20s that I will mention. But I do <laughs> right. obviously love that time. Again, this is Bright Ruined Things by Samantha Coho. And yeah, I would love to hear what readers and listeners think about it also. Awesome. So my next pick is like one of the favorite graphic novels that I read last year. It is 12th Grade Night by Molly Booth, Stephanie Strom, and Jamie Green. And this is the first in a new series that's called Arden High. And it's basically like a high school where like all of your Shakespeare characters are going to high school together and existing. And it's also lightly magical because even though not all of Shakespeare's plays are magical, like some of them are. And so like you know, this story, it's pretty much, like, played pretty straight of, like, the characters in terms of, like, nope, they're real people, real humans. It's not like they have magical abilities. But because they go to Arden High, they just so happen to, like, go to school with, like, Oberon and Titania, and nobody bats an eyelash at that. So, like, that might take, like, a little bit of, like, suspension of disbelief. But I was so enamored with this series. I was like, yep, I'm going there. So 12th Grade Night is, of course, about Viola, who, along with her brother, twin brother, um, Sebastian, they've always gone to the same school. They've always just done things together, especially after the death of their um, father. But unfortunately now... She wants to try a new school. Um, she goes by Vi, by the way. Um, and she, you know, just doesn't like like the dresses of her old school and that is part of the dress code. So she goes to Arden High for a fresh start. And um, Vi presents very much as like stereotypically what you would sort of think a lot of lesbians look like. So everybody just kind of assumes that Vi is some kind of queer and that becomes a little bit of a problem for her because she develops this 
really big crush on Orsino, who is this like very broody poet. And she's like, oh my God, he's so awesome. I like so into him. But he like looks at her and assumes that she is not into guys. And so he's instead telling her all about his crush and like, oh, can you help me get with her? And so Vi is like, sure. And then as she's trying to help him get with his crush, his crush has a crush on Vi. And then also (laughs) she's a twin and they have some very, they have like, these Instagram handles that are almost identical because they're twins and they think it's funny, but that creates some chaos. So all this to say, it is a delightfully chaotic story Mm. of like, you know, mixed identities, confusion, you know, proclamations of love, some embarrassing moments, and it's all leading up to the dance. And I thought it was really fun and a really good way to just kind of, yeah, like transpose that old story into something new and fresh. Also, um, this book is, that play is ripe for um, retelling with queer characters. And I also really like that Vi is somebody who, and I can't remember if she um, is bisexual or if she's just straight, but, you know, she's, she looks like she's not straight, but she's very much into a guy. And it's frustrating to her when people, uh, you know, make an assumption about her based on how she dresses and how she looks. And I like that because I don't think that's been explored as much in YA. So like I said, this is the first in a series. The sequel is King Cheer, um, which is a retelling of King Lear, which I don't know if I can think <laughs> of any King Lear retellings in YA. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's very famously A Thousand Acres by Jane Smiley, which is an adult novel, but I can't think of anything else um, that is YA. So I'm really excited about King Cheer. It comes out later this year. Um, and hopefully there will be more books in the series. I also really like that, um, you know, they're trying to retell, like, not the obvious Shakespeare plays or the most yeah. popular ones. Um, yeah. And I will say, too, really quickly that Molly Booth and Stephanie Strom are both YA writers who've written YA Shakespeare retellings or Shakespeare-centered books. So Booth has written Saving Hamlet and Nothing Happened, and Stephanie has The Taming of the Drew. So I like that they've <laughs> teamed up together. They're clearly big Shakespeare lovers, and they're coming out with this fun graphic novel series, which I feel like not enough people are talking about. So definitely pick up Twelfth Grade Night and look for King Cheer coming out this fall. A++ for the punny, t- punny titles. I will always... I know. I love it. Ugh. So good. So good. All right. I have another, <laughs> in the opposite vein, opposite spirit of you talking about like King Lear not being done a lot. I have another Romeo and Juliet retelling. <laughs> but this <laughs> one it. is different. Okay. This one is set in Harlem. This is contemporary. Well, <sighs> yeah, contemporary. I was about to be like, for some reason I was going to say it's, it was uh, published in 1996, but I'm off by like, a decade. It was published in 2006. That's what I, that's what I was going to say. How it's a little different from what I normally, from what I normally promote. I feel like you're really good, Tirza, at doing like some backlist stuff. Sometimes I'm like, let me like reach into the backlist a little bit. So it was published in 2006, and it's set in Harlem, um, and you know the modern day, and it's in verse. So I was like, all right, let's you know, let's let's mix it up. So. 
It's in New York City. Harlem, by the way, was my favorite place that I lived when I was in when I was living in New York City. Just a little side note. All right. So in the book, Damien is this high achieving student who is on the path to going to a grade school. And he's with this girl, Roxanne, who his family approves of, which is like such a weird thing for me to say. Like, I don't know. I just think it. Well, I don't know. His family wants him to date Roxanne. I just think that's like a weird thing for me, a concept for me. Just, you know, my personal thing. But then there's Janice, bless her heart, because the book opens with her mother getting sentenced to 25 years for drugs. And the poetry around that is so heartbreaking because it really lets the reader marinate in what it means for her children, like not even addressing what it means for her mother who is going to experience that, which, you know, also she brought it on herself, but I, you know, that history, that's a whole other history, but it focuses on this like cycle of trauma, beginning trauma that led to the crimes she committed and the subsequent punishment. You just feel really badly for Janice and her sister and they end up getting sent to live with their grandmother who has some issues of her own, like mental health care issues, also some, previous legal issues. Again, trauma beginning trauma. So we see that vicious cycle and how it affects like three generations of women in this family. Okay. So the two meet. Damien is drawn to Janice, but Janice at first doesn't get why he would like a girl like her. And there's this issue kind of like, kind of like what you were saying, but not having to do with sexuality more so like we come from two different worlds. Like what's your appeal? You know, that type of thing. But eventually you already know how things go, at least to an extent, because there is still some originality and everything. With that said, I won't reveal the ending and what Damien and Janice, how they end up together or if they don't end up together for various reasons. But just know that this, like the other retellings I've mentioned so far, use place and setting to showcase dualities. Like Harlem can be rough, but it can also have a warmth and a wonder to it. It also shows the real life consequences of children, of people in the court system, and how it's not fair again to judge based to judge people based on their family and their appearances, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's a, a unique retelling because of those things. Oh, I think I didn't mention the title. I'm so sorry. Street Love by Walter Dean Myers, who is like an award nominated, award winning author. Yes, I think I forgot to mention that. I was like. I was like so uh, focused on saying like, oh, it's another, you know, Romeo and Juliet story. Oh, um, but it's great. It has very interesting elements to it and language. It's an it's a novel in verse, so it's poetry. Poetry is usually very beautiful. Um, so the language is beautiful, and I like the setting. So again, Street Love by Walter Dean Myers, who's like. The godfather of YA. So if you yes. haven't read anything by Walter Dean Myers, he has so, so many books. He's um, sadly since passed away and he's got an award named after him now, but so many books. And that's a good place to start, too. Yes, absolutely. Uh, right. So um, my next pick is The Only Thing Worse Than Me Is You by Lily Anderson, which <laughs> what a <drag>. I adore. <laughs> what a title. What a drag. That's amazing. Absolutely. Yes. Um, Lily Anderson is the Prince Honor award winning author of Scouts Honor, which I have talked about um, previously. I have I hype up Lily Anderson whenever I can because I just 
love her books. So do I. Listen. She's so good. Scout's Honor, um, Undead Girl Gang. Listen. Ooh, fun. Fun, fun. I haven't read this one, though. This was her debut novel, and I think her first two novels don't get as much attention as her later stuff, which is sad, mm-hmm. but I hope that, like, you know, people who are discovering her go back and, and read her, her some of her backlist stuff. So the Absolutely. only thing worse than me is you is another Much Ado retelling, um, but very different from Speakeasy Speak Love. It is very nerdy. It is set in present day. It is set at a high school for high-achieving teenagers so like you know how i talked about how i was like this insufferable nerd who was like i'm always gonna do like the hard things um (laughs) like basically like the entire cast is like that and as a former insufferable nerd i'm like oh (laughs) i feel i feel simultaneously dragged and seen at the same time so (laughs) that's always it's about balance it's about balance it is (laughs) It's about balance. So I really loved this book when it first came out. It's so hilarious. It has so many great digs. And of course, you know, Trixie is the main character. She hates Ben, who is her academic rival. What I like about it is like they aren't competing for number one for valedictorian, but like their school has this very intense ranking system that everybody just adheres by and they just take it, you know, for normal and take it for granted. Like, this is just how we do things. So Trixie and Ben have been like neck and neck for third place. And all Trixie wants she just wants to solidify getting third place and so it's their senior year school has just started and um, Trixie's best friend becomes um, in sort of like this romantic relationship with Ben's best friend so she's like ugh I have to spend time with you now because, like, our friends are dating. This sucks. And, of course, shenanigans ensue. Um, The famous, like, masquerade scene is, like, a Halloween party where Ben is just, like, dressed up in, like, a full Batman suit. And she's just, like, talking to him like he isn't Ben. And which is just, oh, it's so good. And then a cheating scandal Mm. basically comes for their friends and Trixie and Ben have to team up together to clear their friends' names and this cheating scandal. Um, So I liked the way that she brought in like all of the elements and like the conflict and the friction of the characters in a very modern, contemporary, fun high school setting. These, this is like one of those really unapologetically nerdy books. Um, and the cover kind of looks like a comic book cover, which I think maybe might be a little bit misleading for people because they'll think it's a graphic novel, but it's not. It's just a, it's just a novel, but it's so good. So that is The Only Thing Worse Than Me Is You by Lily Anderson. It is one of my favorite contemporary YA funny books of all time. That's amazing. Yeah, Lily Anderson is always a good time. I looked up the covers you were speaking and it, what's that art? artist Roy Lichtenstein or something like that definitely has those like whatever those dots oh, yeah are those called. vibes yeah definitely the, has those vibes the comics yeah it's a cute cover though but yes I would think I would also think it was a comic book but that sounds amazing always here for Miss Anderson last one I have for today well I have a couple honorable mentions but we're gonna keep it shorter and cuter because we've been yakking for a minute having fun talking about Shakespeare retellings so we're gonna keep this a little you know shorter and tighter so the last one I have is Foul is Fair by Hannah Kappen first off trigger warnings major trigger warnings for this one also it's touted as a retelling of Macbeth with the main character being a reimagined Lady Macbeth 
And again, I will leave this to you as, you know, more of the expert on, you know, this. I kind of feel like it's more Hamlet because of the revenge aspect and like the cost of revenge and stuff like that. Well, maybe not because she doesn't really have, a, she's not struggling with the, <laughs> she's not struggling with the idea of revenge. She was like, no, I'm about to get some revenge, honey. Um, this, this one doesn't have like the father or the paradigm aspect. And it does also have witches, which makes it closer to Macbeth. So anyway, if y'all readers, um, if y'all listeners rather read this, I would love to hear what you think. But anyway, it follows Elle and her friends. And the friend group is like this super popular friend group, this super popular group of girls. They live in LA. They're in high school, of course. It's YA, of course. So, well, one night they crash a prep school party and this group of boys targets Elle. And, but listen, she is not the one or the two because the revenge plot she plots is intense. It's actually super duper extra and definitely puts this book, I think, in the realm of like not super realistic, but just know that going in so you don't have unrealistic expectations. You know, this is a revenge fantasy. So keep that in mind. Um, So Elle takes on her middle name, Jade. She enrolls at the school where the boys go. She singles out a boy who she can kind of like manipulate. He's like on the inside of like the boy friend group or whatever. And she does this in order to enact her revenge. Her coven helps her carry things out. And it's a bloody mess. It gets violent. It's a lot going on in this. So in that aspect, Macbeth is violent. It's, you know, bloody people die. So there's that. Uh, (laughs) But I was just like, I'm like, well, how is she leading me back? Because I'm like, Lady Macbeth didn't get, didn't Lady Macbeth just want the power of the king, her husband to become king of Scotland or whatever? Maybe I'm, like I said, I would love to hear opinions. I would love to hear opinions. So again, Foul is Fair by Hannah Cappen. So I have not read this book. It's been on my TBR forever. Mm. And just the other day, I got really confused because I thought that there was a new book by Hannah Kappen called Golden Boys Beware. But in fact, Foul is Fair was re-released as a paperback with a new cover and a new title. So if you're looking for this book Mm. and you're having a hard time finding it, Golden Boys Beware is the new title. And so it exists under both titles. I hate it when they change titles because... Makes it so hard to find. But no, it's fine. But like also Foul is Fair is a much better title than Golden Boys Beware. It is. I like that the two rhyme, but still like I saw that and I was like, because Golden Boys, that's like referring to that group of boys. And I was like, I didn't even think to look into that. But thank you for mentioning that. I also feel like, I don't know, I feel like I like the cover of this better. Like the cover of Foul is Fair, it looks like, it kind of reminds me of like the pulp, like the girl, how she's drawn. It kind of yeah. reminds me of pulp. It's kind of uh, pulpy. Pulp. Yeah, it's a little pulpy and like bright and colorful. Anyway, and with, a, with a nice blood spatter, blood splatter. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I would love to hear other people's opinions on that. Um, so we can awesome. get you, know, as you said, super nerdy. We like the nerdy things over here. Yeah. 
All right, I'm going to just do my two honorable mentions because we don't have much time left. We, we just keep talking about our books and all that we love. But um, definitely check out That Way Madness Lies by edited by Dahlia Adler. It is a, an anthology and it is a collection of, I think, 12 or 15 short stories um, written by some of the most popular YA authors around. And each story is, if not a retelling, inspired by a mm-hmm. Shakespearean play. So... I have not read this one in its entirety. I know I've read some of them. I read Melissa Bechardo's short story in this collection because I really like her as an author. And I oh, it was so good. So definitely pick that one up. Um, and then for a very loose retelling, um, I would recommend The Last True Poets of the Sea by Julia Drake. This one is really good. It is just kind of like a very loose Twelfth Night retelling but it's definitely like sadder a little bit more emotional very beautiful just a very quick content warning it is about um, a sibling who attempts to take their own life and Mm. sort of the emotional fallout of of all of that so if you know that's a little too heavy for you just know that going in but it was a really beautiful book so those are my two honorable mentions how about you Okay, real quick, An Arrow to the Moon by Emily XR Pan. It's like a blend of Romeo and Juliet and Chinese mythology. And then also If You Come Softly by Jacqueline Woodson, also a Romeo and Juliet. I wanted to mention them honorably because Romeo and Juliet, Romeo and Juliet. But (laughs) I mean, if you want to, those are both excellent authors. So yeah. If You Come Softly will rip your heart out. It's so Mm. good. Mm-hmm. And it, it was originally published, I think, in like 98 or 99. And there's yes. since been like a reissue with a new cover that's really gorgeous. Um, but that's definitely one of those books that's worth going going back into the time machine a little bit and reading. It's so good. Yes, absolutely. Yay. Okay, well, thank you so much for tuning in this week. Um, we appreciate it. Please feel free to leave us feedback on the show. Um, you can leave us feedback on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps let us know how we're doing, but it also helps others to find us. And then, of course, feel free to email us anytime at bookriot.com. Don't forget to visit bookriot.com for newsletters, more podcasts, and, of course, all things bookish. Thank you again to today's sponsors for making the show possible. And thanks, as always, to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Tears of Price. And Erica, how about you? On Twitter at Erica underscore E-Z-E underscore. Awesome. Well, we will be back in two weeks when we will be doing our book club read of All My Rage by Sabata here. So I'm excited. Can't wait to talk about it then. Yes. Sounds fun. Awesome. Until then, happy reading. Happy reading. <laughs>